Nathan is going to be preaching today. Uh, Nathan Elstock. Uh, you may know him uh, mostly because he is Sharon Elstock's brother. Right? Uh, so that's his claim to fame. He's also a teacher at Canterbury Classical School here in Asheville. Um, and he obviously has a gift of teaching that you'll get to enjoy here in just a minute as he continues in our unsubscribe series. But Nathan, let me pray for you and then, uh, and then you can go get him. All right? Jesus, um, thank you uh, for Nathan. Thank you for the way you've made him. Thank you for the way that you have, have gifted him, uh, Lord. And I pray that you speak through him. Uh, speak through him and, and, and speak to our hearts, speak to our souls and encourage us where we need encouragement and convict us where we need conviction. And I pray that we leave this building to change people because of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. All right, have fun, man. Thanks, Fred. Uh, it's a privilege to be here with you all this morning on this side of the body of believers because uh, it's been a dream of my wife and I to be up in Asheville for probably 11 years now. Uh, and we just moved up here almost a year ago, uh, and it's been an, inc- an incredible journey to be up here uh, and to enjoy Asheville, uh, to teach, uh, and to be a part of fellowship, because it's been such a uh, tremendous impact in our lives already. But as a teacher, uh, history is really important, right? We all know this, especially if you're a teacher. You know history is important, because we glean so much from history. And someone that I want us to glean from this morning is a guy named Frederick Douglass, who was a former slave and abolitionist from the 1800s. And he wrote an autobiography. And inside this autobiography, he talks about how he would witness slaves being beaten. And, um, and this is a, a section of what he wrote is this. I remember the first time I ever witnessed this horrible exhibition. I was quite a child, but I well remember it. I never shall forget it whilst I remember anything. It was the first of a long series of such outrages of which I was doomed to be a witness and a participant. It struck me with an awful force, the most terrible spectacle. And he goes on to say how these slaves that he wrote about would often sing of the Ohio River in the midst of being beaten and persecuted, they would sing of the Ohio River. And and he goes on to tell stories about this. And the reason why they would sing of the Ohio River is because that was the access point to the Underground Railroad. And he tells a story on how a slave escapes. He's running as fast as he can with his eyes and focus set on the river in the direction of the river that nothing would deter him left or right. And the slave owner is chasing after him. And the moment the slave reaches the river, he jumps in and allows the waters to rush over him. And the slave owner says he was swallowed up and it's as if he went underground, hence the name Underground Railroad. And they would sing and chant of the Ohio River back to each other uh, while they were working, while they were being beaten. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would they often sing of this? Well, it's because what the Ohio River meant to them, it meant freedom. It meant a loss of chains. It meant uh, safety, life outside of slavery and bondage. It was to them what the resurrection is to you and I as believers. The resurrection to us is our source of hope. It's our source of life. And it's our source of freedom. And so this morning as we dive in, does anyone ever feel like you just continue to struggle with the same sin over and over and over again? Our God's response to us is the resurrection. Are you ever feeling depressed because life is hard? Adulting? is overrated. It's difficult at times, right? Yes. 
I teach teenagers. They're like, oh, adulting's so easy. I'm like, yeah, you have no idea. Um, yes, it's overrated. And when, and when life is depressing, God's response to us is the resurrection. Maybe if we have failing bodies due to sickness, God's response is the resurrection. Or maybe you feel as if your sin is too great for God to forgive you. Your sin is too much for God to ever use you in the future. God's response to us is the resurrection. You see, whether it be financial stress, hard times, a wayward child, a broken marriage, you fill in the blank. God's response is always the resurrection because the resurrection brings us life, hope, and peace and, and freedom. But see, it also invites us to follow. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. The resurrection is your invitation to follow. And we're going to see that through uh, a beautiful story of Peter. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 21. We're going to be in verses 1 through 19. It's a chunk. It's a lot, but we're going to make it through it. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, pick up the Bible in front of you in the pew. It's on page 751. Or if you have your phone, turn in uh, in the app, the Bible app underneath events. And as you're turning there, uh, we're in uh, in the series called Unsubscribed. Uh, And many of us, at some point or another, have unsubscribed to our faith, even a little bit or all of it. And maybe it's due to recurring sin. Maybe it's due to the guilt and the shame that you feel because of poor choices. And that brokenness has kept you from accepting the full truth of the gospel. It's just easier. Trust me, it's so easier just to hit unsubscribe and say, I just can't do it anymore. I'm leaving. Peace out, I'm done. And you walk away from your faith. You walk away from God. It's easier because it's harder. It's more difficult to stay in it when you feel like trash. And if that's the way you feel this morning, you are in a perfect place because we all mess up. We all sin. We are all in desperate need of a Savior. So John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus. Well, after what? Well, after John chapter 20, Jesus. What happened in John chapter 20, Ryan spoke last week about how Jesus appeared after his resurrection to his disciples in a room, and some of the, Thomas wasn't present, and Thomas kind of got his feelings hurt, so he goes, man, I want to see Jesus. He goes, I, gotta, I need to see his, the holes in his hands, I need to put my hands in his sides, and Jesus shows up again, he goes, here you go, Thomas, here's your chance, and Thomas saw the resurrected Christ. That's what this means. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night caught nothing. When Jesus showed up to his disciples, it was always unexpected. He just kind of like showed up. They didn't know. And they're like, yeah, that is Jesus. And he shows up again. And we'll see later on that this is actually the third time that he shows up to his disciples to show that he is raised from the dead and to show that he has power over death, but also to instill what he's about to say. And before Jesus was even arrested, Jesus told his disciples, hey, I'll meet you in Galilee. And what's cool about this passage is that the Sea of Tiberias is also called the Sea of Galilee, which was several days' journey from Jerusalem north. And so they, they, they go up to Galilee, and Peter, in this moment, probably feeling depressed, guilty, shame, because he had just denied Jesus 
three times after Jesus was arrested, probably thought to himself, man, I goofed, I messed up. And so he goes back to what he knows to do. He goes back to the Sea of Galilee to go fishing. In fact, at the beginning of, the, of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus calls Peter to be a disciple while he's fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know about you, but when I've messed up in the past, there's times where I question what I need to be doing, especially when it comes to my relationship with God. I question God's love for me. And we have to understand that God's love for us is not conditional. There never comes a point where you've messed up too much that God says, yep, that's, we're done, we're done, peace out. I need to go on to the next person. God's love for you is not conditional. It is not based upon your actions. Uh, when I was in high school, I knew that God was calling me to be in the ministry. And so God uh, made it very clear to me that I was to go study to be in the ministry at a university called Columbia International University in the good old hot Columbia, South Carolina. And I went, and uh, after my freshman year, which is, was an amazing year of school for me, um, I was studying to be uh, uh, studying Bible, but then also being in youth ministry. At that summer after my freshman year, an amazing first year, I fell majorly. I really messed up. Uh, made some really poor choices. And at that moment, I kind of did what Peter did. And I thought to myself, God can't use me. I'm done. I messed up. I need to go back to my pre-Jesus life. And at that moment, I will never forget, it was so scary. I started questioning God's call on my life. I started thinking, well, I can't go back to CIU. I need to do something else. So I started researching other universities. And of course, I started researching other majors. And I thought to myself, well, I need to make money. So I started researching what majors make money and all this kind of stuff. And I was scared because I had no idea what to do until I fully grasped the gospel that Jesus' love is unconditional. I had a friend, and I will never forget, who told me after years of, of, of unsubscribing truly to Jesus, she said to me, she goes, Nathan, she goes, there's no way God can forgive me because of my sin. There's no way God can use me in the future because of my sin. And she said, it's easier just to leave God. It's easier to walk away. It's truly easier to unsubscribe because he cannot forgive me. And when you hear that, you're probably thinking, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, God. But how many times do we tell that to ourselves because of when we mess up? Oh, God can't use me. Oh, God can't forgive me. And Peter goes back to his pre-Jesus life. He goes back to Galilee and he starts to fish, except this night he didn't catch anything. And Peter was a successful fisherman. He knew where to put his boat. He knew how to cast his nets. He knew where to fish. And this night he caught nothing until he encounters Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse four. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Jesus offers these disciples some amazing, miraculous fishing advice. But if you were Peter, you're already kind of in a bad mood. Um, and if you are like me, when you're in a bad mood and someone starts offering you advice, what typically is your response? 
Like you can just imagine Peter like, okay, yeah, the right side. He just throws his net in out of spite. And then he realizes, oh, this is, this, is, this is exactly where I need to be. Not the left side. I need to be over here. And he does that. He catches so much fish uh, that he can't haul it in. It's like if you uh, go to a football game and you see this football team get demolished on the field. And you go in the locker with them and you're like, hey, how'd it go, guys? They're like, man, we got crushed. We got killed. And they're like, oh, did you should have tried some certain kinds of passes or these plays. Can you just imagine this anger welling up uh, inside these players? And maybe you have felt that way. You get very defensive over your actions. And Peter does what this guy on the shore tells him to do, this miraculous advice. Um, and he calls, Jesus calls them children. And it's not a sarcastic, oh, little kids, you don't know what to do here. It's a endearing, loving term. And that's where a lot of people kind of get this passage wrong. Jesus isn't like trying to uh, be sarcastic here. Jesus is calling them out as loving children that they are to him. And then he provides this miraculous advice for them and that they see that it's Jesus. Now, quick question. Why do you think Jesus asks questions that he already knows the answers to? Well, as a teacher and and as students, you should know this. Uh, the, 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 uh, we ask questions as teachers we ask questions to make you grapple with this make you wrestle with this idea in your head that you have to come up with the answer to and I think the reason why here is because Jesus wanted them to be honest with themselves no we haven't caught any fish we have been at it all night and we have caught nothing Jesus does the same thing he asks them a question so that they have to be honest with themselves the first person that you need to stop lying to is yourself. It's okay. It's good to say, my life is difficult. The path that I'm walking down, the path that I'm choosing to live is leaving me hollow. The relationships that I'm in are leading me not towards Christ, but away from Christ. The parties, the lifestyles, whatever it is, the sin is leaving me empty. The first person you have to be honest with is yourself. And until you're honest with yourself saying that the life you're living is pointless, is worthless, is tiresome because you're not living it for Jesus, then you're going to continue to lie to yourself and you're going to continue to say everything is A-OK like I did that summer after my freshman year of college and I've done many times since then. Jesus wants us to say, man, I've been up all night fishing in my old way of life, my pre-Jesus life, and I've caught nothing But here's the beauty. We're not called to live in our old way of life as believers. We're called to live in the newness of a relationship with Jesus. Verse 7, let's look at this. That uh, that disciple whom Jesus loved, which is is John, the author of this gospel, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. How in the world did did they know that it was Jesus? I mean, a hundred yards is still far away that you would have to really squint, possibly have a pair of binoculars to see, because you could just see the figure and hear the voice, but you couldn't see the, the facial features. And here's the answer why they knew it was Jesus. Back in Luke chapter five, when Jesus calls them as disciples that I talked about earlier, They weren't catching fish. And Jesus gave them the same kind of miraculous fishing advice. And they lower their nets. And what happens? They catch so much fish in their nets that they cannot haul it. 
They've already experienced this kind of Jesus before. And when John realizes, oh, this is the same Jesus, he announces, this is Jesus. And Peter, so excited, yet he still denied him three times recently, jumps in the water and swims after him. And it's interesting because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that it says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Jesus not only sends for Peter, he goes to meet him before he meets the other disciples. And here Peter is racing to get to Jesus first before the other disciples. And there's times where our guilt and our shame can compel us to be kind of over the, overboard, over the top with our actions. But Peter's racing to get, to get to Jesus first. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So you see, Jesus already has breakfast going for them, for a little cute picnic on the lakeshore. But he also asks them to bring more food. Jesus is providing food for them, but he also wants them to share in this fellowship to serve one another. Uh, and Fred taught us two weeks ago uh, on Easter Sunday that when Jesus is serving food, that server, uh, since it's not in his house, it's on a picnic, he's in the place of honor serving them. They, they recognize that it's Jesus. They don't have to ask him who it is. They know that it's Jesus and they know who he is and what he's come through and they have put him in that place of honor. They've allowed him to be in that place of honor to serve them this food. Now, 153 fish, Peter jumps up, and they're large. Now, I try to do some research about what kind of size fish, and of course, any fishing store is, you know, this big to this big. And 153, but most of them weigh several pounds. And you do the math, that's a lot of weight. And Peter is so excited to jump up and grab this fish to serve other people. Verse 15, and this is where I really want us to focus the next few moments. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, which, by the way, goes all the way back to his roots. It's not just Simon Peter. It's Simon, son of John. He, Jesus is saying, I know who you are. I know where you've come from. I've been a part of your life. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These meaning the other disciples who were present. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And several questions come to mind when we read this passage. Why in the world would Jesus ask Peter three times in a row the same question? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? 
And the answer is simple. Weeks ago, in this, according to this story, Peter had denied Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't, I, and he announces to everybody, I don't know who this man is. Which leads us to the next question. Why would Jesus do this publicly? I mean, that's kind of harsh, right? To announce this to everybody you're with. Do you love me in front of everyone? Why is he doing it publicly? And again, the answer is because Peter was so blatantly denying Jesus in front of a large group of people, Jesus is asking him this question in front of people. And it's really, really interesting because Peter and the others who were with him, who also heard him deny Jesus, need to hear this public declaration of his love. Otherwise, uh, doubt could have lingered for years. But let's break this down a little bit further. In the Greek language, which is what New Testament is written in, original New Testament, there's several Greek words for the word love. Uh, there's two forms of the Greek word for love that we find here in this passage. The first one is a word call, called agapeo, which is the verb form of the noun agape, which a lot of you probably are familiar with. Agape love is, a, is the highest form of love. It is the sacrificial form of love. Anytime in Scripture you see Jesus' love, for the world, Jesus' love for other people, for the lost. That's the agape form of love. It's also the kind of love that a parent has for a child. That selfless, sacrificial kind of love. The other form that we see here is the Greek word phileo. And phileo, uh, when it's translated, means to approve of, to like, to be a friend with. Uh, and in, in biblical times, you would greet each other with a kiss. You'd kiss each other's cheeks, kind of thing like they do over in Europe. And that would be our similar to like a hug, handshake, side hug kind of thing. And that is what phileo is. It's saying, hey, you're cool enough to be with you. Shake hand, hey, pal, kind of thing. Agape love is that would be that full embrace. I love you. I deeply love you. And I don't know about you guys, but when I was in like first grade, we had this really cool joke, right? Cool joke in first grade. Uh, when someone say, hey, I love, and you fill in the bank, ice cream. I love ice cream. And someone would be like, hey, if you love it so much, why don't you? Marry it. Yes, good. I'm not the only one. Good, good, good. And why don't you marry it, right? Yeah, so, so ridiculous, right? But first grades are cool. First grades are cool. Um, and that's the idea here. Two different kinds of love. I love ice cream. I love lots of food like that. But it's different than, than marrying it, right? And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. And Peter lessens that love. Uh, teenagers in the room. What if your parents dropped you off at school? Busy school. They roll down the window. Honey, I love you. Do you love me? How would you feel? <laughs> I don't know that person kind of thing, right? Uh, yeah, I remember in ninth grade, uh, my first year, we went to a big public school, very crowded. I was extremely nervous. And I was like, Mom, please don't even drive into the parking lot. Like, please let me out of the car before you even get into the parking lot. And then I walked to school because, one, I didn't want to be seen in our old beat up, like, wood grain minivan. Remember those cool ones? Um, or I did not want her rolling down the window. Honey, have a good day. Like, I'd be mortified, right? That's the idea here between agape and phileo. Yes, we love my, I love my mom, of course, but it's a different kind of love in front of people than it would be at the house kind of thing. And that's what's going on here. Now, let's reread verses 15, 16, 17, now that you know these two different kinds of love. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you, Jesus says, agape love me do you sacrificially love me do you love me to the highest degree more than these he said to him yes lord peter says you know that i phileo love you 
He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I, phileo, love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Now let's stop there for a moment. Even when you and I don't fully comprehend or grasp that unconditional agape form of love that God has for us, he never, never stops loving us. Even when we mess up and we cannot be near him because we might be a little embarrassed and shameful and we can't return or reciprocate that same kind of agape love, he does not stop loving us. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, watch what Jesus does here. Do you phileo love me? Peter was grieved. Why was Peter grieved? Well, because Peter had already declared, I phileo love you twice. And now Jesus is saying, do you phileo love me? Do you phileo love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo love you. Peter could not get to that agape form of love with Jesus yet. Maybe, maybe Peter hadn't fully grasped the gospel, the truth, the forgiveness that the gospel offers. And Peter, a man who was so boastful, so sure of himself, so confident of his own courage, is now thoroughly humbled. Jesus' first question, do you love me? was a subtle reminder that Peter, weeks prior, said to Jesus and all the other disciples when, Je- when, 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 when Jesus told Peter that before the rooster crows the third time, you will, you, know, you will have denied me three times, or before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I will never fall away. He was so sure of himself. In his reply, Peter declares his love for Christ, but he refuses to compare himself with anyone else at this moment. He feels it. He feels the pain, but it was absolutely necessary. You see, Jesus was cleaning this wound that it might be properly healed. He's getting rid of Peter's guilt and shame. Now, notice what Jesus does not do. He doesn't humiliate him publicly. He doesn't say, are you sorry for what you've done? I can't believe you did something like that to me, Peter. And if he did that, the guilt and the shame would have just risen. But here, Jesus gets rid of the guilt and shame out of Peter's life. You see, once we've hurt somebody that we love, it's hard to look at them in the eyes. Better yet, it's harder to express our commitment to them. It's easier to be like, oh, that's an awkward conversation. Let's just shy away. Let's unsubscribe. And, you know, that person's walking that way. I've hurt them. I've sinned against them or I've done something wrong to them. I'm just going to stay way over here and I'm going to avoid that person as much as necessary. I'm going to unsubscribe from my relationship with them. And that's what we do with Jesus. We mess up because we forget. We tell ourselves the lies that Jesus can't forgive us. That he's, he's, it's, my sin is too big. And so we shy away from it. Peter needed to see the enormity of his sin here. He needed to hear Jesus ask these searching questions. And only then could he grasp the magnitude of Christ's forgiveness. And then Christ restores him here. This is so cool. Jesus says after those three questions, he says, Feed my lambs. And that Greek word for feed is not putting food in my mouth. It is giving knowledge to. Jesus says, hey, Peter, I want you to teach lambs. Baby sheep, translated young believers. I want you to teach young believers. And then the second thing he tells them is to to, uh, tend to his sheep. And this here 
If we look at this, if we dissect this phrase, it is Jesus is calling Peter out of a life of a disciple, out of a fisher of man, and into a shepherd of a flock. That shepherd of a flock is where we get the word pastor from. And we know this to be true because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had already told Peter, hey, you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is calling Peter away from being a fisher of man, away from that discipleship, into more of a pastoral role. Oh, but Jesus, I I just denied you three times. I really messed up. Jesus saying, listen, the resurrection, my resurrection has forgiven you. It has brought you freedom from your sin. And now I'm calling you to lead my sheep. What's also really cool about this, there's a word charcoal fire here. Did y'all catch that word charcoal fire? Charcoal fire. All this is taking place around a charcoal fire. There's only one other, I'm gonna get a little nerdy on you. There's only one other word uh, or place in the New Testament where that phrase charcoal fire is used. Uh, And that is in John 18, the charcoal fire that was used at nighttime in a courtyard to keep people warm when Peter first denied Jesus. And so could you imagine even the aroma of the smoke when Peter's like bringing up all his past And now around one charcoal fire, he says, I don't know him. And around this charcoal fire, he says, Lord, you know that I love you. Around one charcoal fire, he said he denied Christ. And around this charcoal fire, he's being restored by Christ. You see, the resurrection is your invitation to restoration. The resurrection is your invitation to restoration. When we have faced our sin and even the one that we have hurt, and we face them, we've looked them at the eyes, we've dealt with our sin, because all of us are sinners. Christ begins to restore us. So what in your life has been left undone today? What in your life have you been ignoring? That is that awkward conversation or that awkward sin that nobody else knows about and you're just pushing it away out of fear to have to deal with it? God wants to restore you. He wants to allow that process to take place and you are in an amazing body of believers here to help you through that. Don't wait. God wants to restore us. Let's look at verse 18. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying all this, he said to him, follow me. He's telling Peter that one day he would have the courage to die for him, to die in the worst way possible. By one charcoal fire, he denied Christ. By another, he was restored to Christ. And by this same charcoal fire, he's given the restoration and the courage to live his life for Christ by following after him. But notice this metaphor. It's strange if you think about it. This metaphor, he compares stretching out his hands, dying on a cross, which Peter, if we, we can also go back to history and see that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be like Christ like in that aspect. And so he was crucified. He was stretched, he was, his hands were stretched out to die, but Christ uses this metaphor to compare it to a way a child stretches out his hands 
to his parents. And anytime you go to a little toddler, if that little toddler looks up at you and they, he puts out his hands to you, you know what he wants. He wants to be picked up. He wants you to hold him. He wants you to embrace him. He wants that relationship. It's not like you're going to like, oh, you want a toy? Let me just give you this toy. Or you want something else? No. He goes up to you and he has his hand stretched out to you. And Peter, it's almost as if Jesus tells Peter that his posture toward Jesus is what will give him the strength to die like that. Peter thought his strength came from being successful, that he was better than others, that he was, that he, he was able to, to do certain things. But Jesus told him that his strength would come from relating to him the way a child relates to his parents. Now, don't miss this. How did Jesus turn Peter, this guy who was so shaky that he denied Jesus three times in one evening to one who would endure crucifixion? It's not a new doctrine or new practical steps you need to go through. It was the fact that Peter experienced God's grace. Peter's failures brought him closer to Jesus than his successes ever could. And that's true for us today. Your failures bring you closer to Jesus than your, success, than your successes ever can. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how many awards you have. I don't care if you were the star whatever in high school or college. Our failures will always bring us closer to Jesus. Why? Because through our failures, we see we have a desperate need for Jesus. When Peter stretched out his hands in his own strength, his attitude was like, look at how mighty I am. He denied Jesus. But when he stretched out his hands in intimacy to Christ, like a child stretches out his hands to his parents, he had the strength to endure crucifixion. Now, Jesus chose Peter to be the rock of which this church was built, not despite his failures, but because of his failures. His failures put him in touch with God's grace. And God's grace is where a leader's real strengths come from. And it is the church's only resource to help other people. But listen, you can only pour God's grace into other people when you are filled with it yourself. So many times people pretend that they're followers of Jesus Christ because that's what we're supposed to do in the South or that's what my parents expect of me or that's why I'm here at church and they forget that they have to be filled with God's grace first. They forget I have to deal with my sin. I have to deal with the people that I've hurt. I have to be restored myself to then offer that kind of grace and restoration through Christ to others. Our failures show our need for Christ. And here's the deal. We are saved from a life of sin but we're also saved to a life with God. And there's a lot of people that I've talked to that forget that second part. They know that they've been saved from a life of sin, but then they stop there. They don't go on to say, I'm saved to a life with God. And that's, through the resurrection, our invitation to follow God. That is an action that we have to take every single day to follow after Christ. Why? He loves us more than we can ever imagine. Back in Genesis, when sin first entered the world, it would have been easier for God to have said, oh, clean slate, let's start over. But no, he chose restoration. He chose a progress of redemption. And through our failures, because we will continue to fall and fail, 
Just as he did with Peter, he will allow us to see that we are helpless. And when we get to that moment, we see that we need his grace and his mercy. So maybe you're sitting here this morning. You've said yes to Jesus in the past. You've tried to follow after him, but something is blocking that. There's been this awkward conversation that needs to happen that you've unsubscribed from. Maybe it's a sin, reoccurring sin in your life. You feel guilty or shameful over your poor choices and you have allowed that to separate you further from God. This morning, do what Peter did. Stop lying to yourself. Man up, woman up, and deal with it. Allow that process of restoration to filter through your heart so that you can say, I'm ready to follow Jesus. There's nothing you can ever do to make God love you more, but there's also nothing you can do to ever make God love you less. Your sin does not define who you are. It does not. Jesus defines who you are. And maybe you're a bystander. Maybe you're the person who witnessed this conversation take place with Jesus and Peter, and you're like, I've never said yes to Jesus. I've never given my life to Christ. I've never experienced God's forgiveness to begin with. That's where you need to start this morning. You need to say yes to Jesus because you're tired of trying to live your life according to your own merit. You're trying to live a life worthy of Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Even your best actions are like filthy rags. I want to take you and restore you for who you are and use you for where you've been and where I'm going to lead you. So if that's you this morning, my challenge is to, to you this morning is do not leave here without answering that call that you were feeling on your heart this morning. Talk to the person you came with this morning. Talk to someone that you love, trust. Come talk to me, the prayer team who will be up here during communion. We would love to lead you through saying yes to Jesus and experiencing that freedom. Just as the slaves sang of the Ohio River, we sing of the resurrection because we know that's where our freedom lies. So the resurrection, that's our invitation to follow after Jesus. As the band comes up to prepare to lead us through communion, I want you guys to close your eyes and I want you to examine your heart. I want you to examine uh, where you are and, and, and ask God to reveal to you if there is anything blocking you from living this God-following kind of life he's leading us towards. And as we, take, as we partake in communion, as Carrie will explain in just a moment, use this time to really allow God and the Holy Spirit to restore you so that you can follow him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have done in our lives. And even as we sang earlier, I am who you say I am, may those words ring ever true in our lives because you have said we are forgiven, that we are free, that we are a child of God, not something that sin defines, that slavery and bondage defines. God, reveal in our hearts the things that are keeping us from following after you so that we may deal with them and follow, truly follow after you. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you for what you're doing here and in our lives. For we pray all this in Jesus' name.